middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Math Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Allison, and today I'm going to share an idea that will help you save time and increase your impact with students. When I was a teacher, there were some points I worked upwards of 70 hours a week. Yes, going into teaching, I knew it was going to be a lot of work, and yes, I did tell you last last week that I was teaching a lot of subjects in the beginning, um, sometimes prepping up to six different, six or more different subjects for the day. And I did get quicker and more efficient over the years, but still, right? 70 hours a week is simply not sustainable. Um, and in my opinion, neither is 60 hours a week and, and probably not even 50. But I wanted to help my students learn, you know, just like most teachers, if not all teachers. And so I did whatever it, I felt it would take to give my students what I thought they needed. Hours of planning, creating activities, designing assessments, grading papers, writing comments, phone calls to parents, monthly newsletters, <laughs> shopping for classroom incentives, you name it, I did it, and I'm sure you're doing it too. But after about four years of this, I was drained, and I knew that if I wanted to stay in education, I would have to find another solution. And I thought I found it when I took a new job teaching middle school math, where I would only have to prep for a seventh grade math class, an eighth grade math class, plus a class called the Discipline Life, which was our school's social-emotional learning curriculum. Now, this helped a little bit, and I was able to cut down to about 50 or 55 hours a week because I was teaching the same content a couple of times every day, and so planning three unique lessons instead of about six. You know, I had the seventh grade, uh, I taught the seventh grade lesson twice, I taught the eighth grade lesson twice, I think I had a, a drop everything and read class, which really took no prep, um, it was just monitoring, and then this uh, character education class. And this felt this felt okay to me at the time, you know, 50 to 55 hours a week. I still had enough time for friends and fun and exercise and relaxing, all things that were very and still are important to me. And also at the time, I didn't have a significant other or or kids at home. And so 
50 to 55 hours a week, you know, that time frame worked pretty well for me at the time. However, a few years later, when I moved into the instructional coaching role, my workload ramped up again and I was back up to 60 plus hours a week. And, you know, at the busiest times of year, you know, even more. And especially during the time periods when I was teaching my own class, you know, those years when that happened, it was it was crazy. You know, what was even harder in that role was that I saw the toll that the job was taking on the teachers I supported. So now it wasn't just about me and my well-being, but about people I was supporting and managing and really cared about. I cannot tell you the number of coaching sessions I had where teachers were in tears exhausted and frustrated by their endless list of responsibilities. But, you know, the challenge was that neither the teachers nor I wanted to cut down on work at the expense of our students' learning. All of us were dedicated to seeing our students succeed. But again, working this many hours week after week and year after year just wasn't sustainable for anyone. Nevertheless, the result was that many of the teachers decided to leave teaching or at a minimum leave our school. So the trend came to be that that teachers stayed for about two to four years. And then if something changed in their personal lives, where a 60 or 70 hour work week was no longer feeling possible for them, they either shifted into a non-teaching role, either in or out of education, or moved to a different school with the promise of a more balanced workload, which a few teachers have found at other schools. So, you know, I'm not saying this is impossible. But I also hear from so many teachers, one of the biggest realities of being a teacher is your endless to-do list. How many of you as a teacher, you work nights, you work weekends, you know, you're always thinking as you're driving, you, you probably never watch a show on Netflix without a computer in your lap or papers that you're grading, right? So while I 100% understood each and every teacher's decision to leave our school, it was heartbreaking to me because it meant that our students would not only lose a teacher that they had built a relationship with, and typically these were very strong teachers who were teaching the kids, you know, giving the kids a really great experience in math class, and also the kids were learning so much. But it meant we'd be bringing in a new teacher the following year, which more often than not meant that students' learning would be stalled while the new teacher got acclimated. At another time, I'll share more about my lessons learned when it comes to hiring math teachers because I did learn a lot over the years, and I tried very hard to hire a a new teacher who could hit the ground running. But in my experience, losing a good teacher has a huge ripple effect on the entire school on students, the math team, you know, the school culture. And in my opinion, it should be avoided if at all possible. So in a nutshell, here's the dilemma that I faced as a math coach. I could tell teachers to scale back the work they were doing, which in my mind would inevitably have a negative impact on student learning, or continue as things were going, which meant high teacher turnover. I'd seen it year after year after year. Remember, I was in that role for six years and my entire team turned over probably three times. High teacher turnover also leads to a negative impact on the school. It sounded like a lose-lose situation to me. It was a lose-lose situation. And I was in serious turmoil about this because I cared deeply about my team of teachers and the students in our school. And I'd had one too many conversations with teachers in the spring where they'd tell me why they weren't planning to return back the following year. And one major factor was 
always the workload and you know their mental health and the the, wor- the lack of work life balance. And I did not blame them. You know, like I said, I really cared about them as people and ultimately encouraged them and wanted them to make the decision that was best for them. But at the same time. I wanted what was best for our students. And so I wanted us as a leadership team to create the systems and the conditions that would be needed to meet everyone's needs, create a work environment that was sustainable for teachers, and give students what they needed on a daily basis. As you probably know, this is way easier said than done. And at our school, it always felt like we were just a few staff members short or just a few instructional minutes away from having what we truly needed to support every student in the way we wanted to, which meant everyone ended up wearing multiple hats and working double time. So that just fed into this problem. You might be living this right now. And if you are, I know it's a rough place to be, feeling like you're trying to pick from the lesser of two evils preserve your own sanity, or give all you can to your students. What if I told you there is a way to do both? I'm going to tell you about the day that changed everything for me. It was about 10 years ago now. I was in an all-day professional development session at the Accelerate Institute here in Chicago with other members of our leadership team, my principal and two other instructional coaches. And the session was designed to help us with our strategic plan for the following year. It was in this professional development session that I was introduced to something I'd never heard of before and that I've never forgotten since. In fact, it's something that I live by now, and you may have heard of it. It's called the 80-20 rule, also known as the Pareto Principle. According to Forbes.com, the 80-20 rule originated from a man named Vilfredo Frederico Damaso Pareto. Forgive me if I pronounced any of that incorrectly who was born in Italy in 1848. Preto was a philosopher and an economist. Here's a little from the summary. It says, legend has it that one day he noticed that 20% of the pea plants in his garden generated 80% of the healthy pea pods. This observation caused him to think about uneven distribution. He thought about wealth and discovered that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by just 20% of the population. He investigated different industries and found that 80% of production typically came from just 20% of the companies. So the generalization became that 80% of results will come from just 20% of the action. This quote-unquote universal truth about the imbalance of inputs and outputs is what became known as the Pareto Principle, or for shorthand, the 80-20 rule. Now, of course, it doesn't always come to be exactly an 80-20 ratio, but it is a helpful and sticky concept nonetheless. I happen to love the 80-20 rule, and it's not just because it's made up of two even numbers and a ratio, which, by the way, I also happen to love, but because of what it stands for. This idea of identifying those 20% of actions which have the highest impact. So that day, I felt like I had had the epiphany I'd been waiting for. I realized that the way we could continue helping our students accelerate their learning, which we'd gotten pretty good at as a school, while also preserving our teachers' sanity and mental health, which we weren't as good at, but which I I hoped would lead to higher retention and even greater outcomes for students, was to focus on the 20% that matters the most, that 20% that has the biggest impact. All we'd have to do was find and then focus on those things that really make a difference. This all sounded perfect, except there was only one problem, which you can probably guess. 
So what are the things that fall within the 20% when it comes to accelerating student learning in math? None of us were willing to gamble student learning on a hunch or a hypothesis, right? And unfortunately, finding solid educational research to clearly identify which small set of items has the biggest impact can feel near to impossible. And even if you do find a study that shows that one strategy or another leads to an increase in learning, there are so many variables between one school and another, one classroom to another, one teacher to another, and even one set of students to another. So you cannot simply extrapolate, generalize, or declare one blanket solution, though many have tried. And what ends up happening, as you probably know, is when we don't have clarity about the biggest needle movers, we tend to hedge our bets. If you don't know what's making the difference, you tend to try to cover all your bases, which means we throw every strategy into the kitchen sink. And that's how we end up with one initiative after another, after another, after another, just waiting to see, you know, maybe one of these things will make a difference. So from that point on, I set out on a journey to find those things that fit in the 20% category. And it's been a long road, let me tell you. But I knew that if I could identify those things that really move the needle, that would be such a gift. Because when you know the 20%, you can prioritize them and put them front and center in your decision-making process. We can strip away some of that to-do items and some of the noise caused by the other 80% of things we tend to do. Now, if you're a teacher or a leader, I'm guessing your antenna is raised right now and you want to know if I've been able to find things to fit in that elusive 20% category. I have good news for you. Over the past decade, I've been in a unique position to have a bird's eye view of school and district's math improvement efforts. And throughout this podcast, I'm going to tell you more about the trends I saw, both the promising trends and the ones that unfortunately didn't lead to much progress. In fact, in next week's episode, I'm going to tell you the story of how I discovered one key factor that determines whether your students learn math at a deep level or not. Now, when I work with teachers and school leaders, this is one of a handful of factors I have on my very short list of things that go in the 20% worth our time bucket. You will not want to miss this episode, so make sure you head over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen in and hit subscribe now. You know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and oftentimes the math improvement journey can feel a thousand miles long. That's why I'm so glad we're on this mindful math journey together, and in particular why I'm glad you've chosen to take a single step forward today with me by listening into this episode. Thanks for tuning in.